facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Hey, welcome to the program. It is Fat Tuesday. It's the 13th of February, 2024, Mardi Gras. So happy to be partying with you on The Kale Clark Show. And you can call in right now, 888 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. You can also email the program. The address is Kale. C-A-L-E at RelevantRadio.com and find me on the X app at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E Clark with an E. I don't know what you're eating today. Hopefully you are. Uh, maybe grabbing some nugs. I don't know. We were, Producer Jim and I were just talking about the Super Bowl, that, that, that famous scene, that confrontation between Travis Kelsey and Coach Andy Reid. And of course, it's become just a playground for memes. One of the memes I saw was Travis Kelsey saying to Coach Reid, give me those nugs, hand over those nugs. Well, why is it that people are eating chicken nuggets, maybe pancakes today? I don't know if you know this, but what are the other names for this day, this Feast of Mardi Gras, is Shrove Tuesday. I don't know if that's – I don't think it's as big of a deal in the USA as it is elsewhere in the world. Uh, Western Europe, the UK, certainly Canada, and pancakes not, – not just pancake breakfast, but – Pancake suppers are all the rage. In fact, there's many of them going on right now in local parishes. And hey, they're, they're great fundraisers for the church as well. well. What exactly is Shrove Tuesday? Or as the writer Greg Garrison says, Holy Pancake Day. <laughs> well, the, the reason why it's called Shrove Tuesday is it, it, it comes from an old English word, shrive. To shrive, okay. So to so shrove is the past tense of shrive, and shriving meant gaining absolution of your sins by confession and repentance. It's also known, of course, as Pancake Tuesday, as I just said. But I, I have a funny feeling that it's not as big in the USA. Maybe you can correct me on this one. Triple eight nine one four nine one four nine. If pancakes are big in your neck of the woods, you need to disabuse me of this notion that it's not a big deal in America. But pancakes were traditionally eaten on the day before Ash Wednesday because it was kind of a convenient way to, to use up any excess eggs, milk, sugar, which were considered kind of, I guess you could say, I don't know, a, a little bit too decadent to, to use during Lent. I'm not saying you can't eat eggs during Lent or anything like that. We'll get into what you can and can't do. Uh, according to the church, in, in just a little while. But traditionally, in the old days, in the old world, that's what people did before the 40 days of Lent started with its, uh, of course, attendant fasting. So when you are fasting during Lent, you're usually eating a little bit more plain food. You're, you're kind of holding back from a lot of the, the, the so-called pleasurable foods of meat, sugar, dairy, eggs, that sort of thing. And this also, of course, goes hand in hand with people giving up something for Lent. Now, do you have to give up something for Lent? We'll get into that later as well. But in America, of course, as in certainly in New Orleans, for sure, it's called Mardi Gras. It's known as Mardi Gras. In French, it's Fat Tuesday. It's Fat Tuesday. Mardi, of course, being the name for Tuesday in French. And the reason why it's called Fat Tuesday or Mardi Gras it, it doesn't really have anything to do with trying to get fat on this day, although many people, I guess that's that's part of the deal. You can just uh, um, work on sh- shaving off some of those pounds during Lent. 
get back to uh, a little bit more exercise, maybe a bit better diet. But it's out, it was actually called Fat Tuesday because that day people wanted to use up all the excess fat that they had in their homes. And again, this is the, where the butter and, and all that sort of stuff comes into play. So that's why it's called Fat Tuesday. But, of course, tomorrow, Ash Wednesday, no, no more indulgence. And, of course, even today, don't go overboard. Don't give in to the sin of gluttony. Don't give in to the sin of drunkenness. Drunkenness is a mortal sin. you, you got to confess that. People do obviously go nuts in the secular world on this day, too. It's also intriguing to me that secular people will very often, you see this, you'll see this in any Catholic church all around the world, especially in big cities, people wander into, say, St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City or any Catholic church, and, they, and they'll want to receive the ashes during uh, Ash Wednesday Masses, even if they're not Catholic. And anybody can come up and get the ashes. There's no question about that. Anybody can do that. The church doesn't discriminate. And of course, when that happens, when the priest makes the sign of the cross on your forehead with the ashes, which, by the way, come from Palm Sunday palms from the previous Palm Sunday, which are burned, made into ashes. And that's kind of interesting, too, because as Tim, Father Tim Grumbach likes to say, he's a, he's a frequent guest on, on Relevant Radio, this, this desire for fame, this desire for recognition, um, of course, Jesus did not crave this at all, but people did recognize him, praise him as Messiah. Well, a lot of people turned on him, not everybody. But, uh, of course, when he was arrested, same people, some of the same people may, may have mocked him on the cross. We have to live our lives for an audience of one, God alone. But we'll take that desire for, for fame and we'll just burn it. We'll just burn it and crucify it, if you will with these ashes and try to live just for God alone. So the priest will say, remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return, quoting Genesis 3.19. And sometimes they'll, they'll just say, repent and believe in the gospel, depending on how, how quickly uh, they need to go, how, how bad the lineup is. But of course, so that's, that's kind of the, uh, the origin of Shrove Tuesday or Pancake Tuesday, Holy Pancake Day, if you will, the day before we start this new liturgical season of Lent. You're listening to The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio, 888 So let me just give you a bit of a, a primer for Lent. I think it's it's really important just to get set up for tomorrow. And of course, we know that um, feasts were, were very popular and, and really they, they had to be celebrated in the Jewish world from which Jesus came. There was the Feast of Hanukkah, of course, the, the Feast of Weeks, uh, Shavuot, Pentecost, all of that stuff. And there are feasts, of course, feasts of faith in the Catholic Church as well. And so, really, the, this, this, this does make a, a lot of sense here. And people very, will often ask the question, well, when did the Church actually start observing this season of Lent? When did, when did Lent actually start? Well, the Ash Wednesday... Um, rituals of our modern time really didn't get going until maybe the 7th or 8th century, according to Dr. James Merrick. But the idea of Lent goes back much, much further in the past. It goes back way, way closer to the beginnings of the church. In fact, St. Irenaeus, one of the good fathers of the church, one of my favorites, great apologist, great defender of the faith, he wrote that famous book, Against the Heresies, in 180 AD. He was the Bishop of Lyon, in modern-day France. And uh, he talked about um, 
the, there was sort of a fight that was going on in his day about how long the fast should be, the pre-Easter fast. So we know that people were engaging in penitential practices in the early church, but the, the first time that we have any kind of a dated reference to an actual fixed 40-day period comes in the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, but obviously it was going on even before then. And it was kind of interesting, too, because obviously during Lent, catechumens are preparing for baptism during the Easter Vigil. There were also in the early church groups of people known as the penitents. And these are people who had separated themselves from Holy Mother Church, whether through mortal sin or some public scandal or something like that. And they wanted to repent. They wanted to come back into the church. They wanted to come back into full communion. And so really kind of those two groups, the penitents and the catechumens, were kind of set up alongside lay people in the church and everybody was kind of doing it together. They were, they were participating in Lenten fast. They were participating in things like Ash Wednesday when, when it, when it was sort of codified and solidified. And so this is, this is a very ancient practice in the church. And the reason why we do this for 40 days, of course, and it's not, it's not always, it's not always a strict 40 days according to the calendar. You can count up the days and even if you include the Sundays, it doesn't always add up exactly to 40, but that's okay. It's, it's, it's a symbolic number. And this is going back, of course, to the Old Testament, the flood in Genesis chapter 7. And we talked about this during the Genesis series on the Faith Explained program. Obviously, that had to do with wiping out all the great sin on the face of the earth. That was a 40-day period, that great flood. Moses, when he receives the Ten Commandments from God, He's up on Mount Sinai. He's there on the mountain for 40 days. And you can read about this in Exodus 24. We, we did the Exodus series on the Faith Explained as well. That's a good book to read uh, during Lent, I think, as well. And you can check out those episodes on the Faith Explained page on relevantradio.com. So he's on the mountain for 40 days. While he's there, of course, the people think he's not coming back. They begin to indulge. They begin to kind of have a... <laughs> Mardi Gras celebration of their own, I guess you could say, at the foot of the mountain, going way overboard. And, of course, they fall into not only debauchery, but idolatry as well. Moses comes back, and he, he sees what they've done. He is, he is absolutely beside himself. He breaks the tablets. So he has to go back up Mount Sinai. He's pleading with God to forgive them. And during this time, he's, he's doing what? He's fasting for 40 days. And you can read about this in Exodus 34. He's fasting for 40 days. He's doing reparation, I guess you could say, for the sins of the people. And then following this, uh, the Israelites get back on track, but it's, it's a wandering track, that's for sure. For 40 years, they're in the desert before they get to the Promised Land. You can read about their entering the Promised Land in the book of Joshua. So th this, it doesn't stop there, though. It goes on and on throughout the history of the people of God. The prophet Elijah, he fasted for 40 days. You can read about this in 1 Kings chapter 19. And one of the reasons why he was doing this was he was extremely angry with the people because they had fallen into idolatry. They were worshiping false gods, and there are all kinds of false gods that, that people worship today. There are all kinds of idols that we manufacture for ourselves. It could be a thing. It could be something from the, 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 the goods of the earth that we, that we make. It could be another person. It could, it, it, if something or someone is on the throne of your heart and it's not God, then that is an idol. And Elijah was extremely angry at the people about their idolatry. Jonah, of course, the prophet Jonah, he preaches to the Ninevites, this wicked city, and he doesn't want to. He wants God to destroy them. He can't stand them. But 
he does obey God eventually, as we know the story. And they fast. They repent. And Jonah is shocked that they repented his preaching. They fast in sackcloth and ashes for how long? For 40 days. You can read about this in Jonah chapter 3. And then, of course, when we get to the New Testament, the paradigm really is Jesus who fasted for 40 days in the desert before his earthly ministry, and he's tempted by the devil. And we'll talk about this, of course, uh, during Lent. So this 40-day period is a very natural block of time for us to to use during Lent. And if you go by the old calendar, when the Christmas season ended at Candlemas, the presentation, it was actually a 40-day period for Christmas too. So it kind of balanced very nicely with 40 days of Lent as well. And some people, of course, um, not everybody, because I think a lot of Protestants even in, in their traditions, and if you're listening today, we, all, we have an awful lot of non-Catholics and even people of no faith, non-Christians, Atheists, agnostics, people who are searching, listening to this program, and they'll often call in. So if you're if you're from a Protestant background and you, you you in your tradition you actually practice Lent, you can call in and tell me about it because I know that this is this is a thing in a lot of Protestant groups, especially uh, Anglicans and the Episcopalian movement and, and other groups. That Lent is a thing, but it's not for everybody. And and some non-Catholic Christians would say. You don't need to do these things. You don't need to fast. You don't need to mortify yourself. You don't need to do any penance because Christ has done it all for you. But here's the deal. Christ himself taught that fasting was going to be a thing for his disciples going forward. In Matthew chapter 6, he actually says this. So you can read about this in Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, when you fast, not if you fast, not if you fast, but when you fast, don't make a big deal out of it. Don't make it obvious that you're, that you're fasting so that you'll get the applause of people. You want the applause of heaven. You want only, really, don't, don't make it obvious to anyone except God. Wash your face, um, you know, put on some whatever, lotion or I don't know. Chanel number 45, I don't know, I don't know. Don't act any different than you would on any other day because... And in Jesus' day, there were a lot of rabbis, and and actually, I think this is kind of what he's making fun of in a way. There were a lot of rabbis in Jesus' day who would do exactly that. They would draw attention to themselves for their fasts, and they were called those who scraped themselves against the walls. What does that mean? Well, they would literally stagger throughout the town, uh, looking like they're half dead. They would be all disheveled. They, they, you know, bags under their eyes, and, and they would literally like hold onto the wall for dear life, like they're going to fall down. Oh, I'm so hungry. And, and someone would come up to them and say, Rabbi Shlomo, are you fasting today? Why, yes, how could you tell? So, I mean, they were doing it just kind of for that applause and that notoriety. And Jesus says, don't do that. Just, just take care of yourself. Don't make it obvious. God will see your sacrifice. Don't do it for people's sake. Do it for God's sake, quite literally. So we do have to do this. We do need to do this, according to Jesus, certain times, certain time periods like Lent. And, and Jesus, of course, wasn't alone in this. Uh, Saul, when, when Jesus first appeared to him after the resurrection, after the ascension, when Saul of Tarsus received this vision of Christ on the road to Damascus. As soon as all this stuff happened, he fasted for three days. And then uh, St. Luke tells us that in the Acts of the Apostles, when he's kind of traveling with Paul, 
they're fasting when they choose Barnabas and Paul for ministry. Like, who are we going to send out? What do we? So they, they had this big decision to make, and they fasted. And that's another that's another thing you can kind of incorporate, not just during Lent, but it's it's a common spiritual practice to focus in a little bit on fasting when you have a big decision to make. Fasting and prayer, it's very powerful together. Uh, later on in Acts chapter fourteen, Paul and Barnabas they're fasting when they're when they're discerning. Who do we want to choose as the priests, as the presbyters for the people of God? In these towns, we've got the church up and running. We've got to move on and set up the church elsewhere. We've got to keep evangelizing new, new towns, new peoples. So let's set up some leaders who can take over when we leave. And they, and they fast so they can figure out what God's will is here. So it's a, so it's a big deal. And it's, the Catechism says this when it talks about Lent. In, in paragraph number 540, it says, By these solemn 40 days of Lent, the church unites herself each year to the mystery of Jesus in the desert. Of course, Jesus, what was he doing there? He was fasting for a lot of that time. So what, what do we actually need to do? What, what does the church require of us as Catholic Christians during Lent? Well, that's a great question. We're going to answer that. What you need to know, what you need to do right after this break. So it is Shrove Tuesday. You can call in 888-914-9149. Scale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. This is the Kale Clark Show, giving you the confidence you need to bring the faith into everyday life. Welcome back to the program, 888-914-9149 is the number to call. It's our listener line sponsored by the Catholic Order of Foresters Life Insurance, 888-914-9149. That song is called Pizza Guy, so no pizza tomorrow, Fresh Wednesday, unless it's a just a cheese pizza, maybe a fish pizza. I'm going to crack open another segment for you here on the show. That's a manual sound effect. That's real. And um, let's, 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 I'm not indulging in anything I shouldn't be right now during Lent, by the uh, Mardi Gras, that is, before Lent. Uh, just in case you're wondering, it's just cola, just diet cola. But what, what are we actually supposed to, should, maybe I should give that up. It, it, my, everyone is like, oh, aspartame's bad for you. <laughs> Anyways, um, what should we do during Lent? Well, obviously, we, we talked a lot about fasting in the previous segment. And just, just to lay out the, the rules uh, according to the bishops of the USA, if you're between the ages of 18 and 59, so you've got to, especially on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday in particular, these are days of fasting. And I'll explain what fasting is in just a second exactly. And abstinence, it's not abstinence from that, it's abstinence from meat. Uh, and so fasting, okay, what is, what is exactly fasting? Fasting means one meal, okay, so one main meal, and this and this is sort of the optional part. You don't have to do this, but there may be some reasons why you would, like some health reasons, for example. Two snacks, quote-unquote, and how big can the snacks be? Some people try to get around this by having, like, a massive one meal, and then, oh, the two snacks were, like, a lot smaller than that, but they were, like, normal meals, but just... No, I mean you got to. It's the spirit of, of of you know. Don't don't try to circumvent the letter of the law, and, and keep the right spirit here. So these two snacks, quote unquote, 
when you combine those two snacks, they're not the size of the one main meal that you're having. All right. So day of abstinence during Lent, uh, it's not just Ash Wednesday. It's not just Good Friday, but also every Friday during Lent, it's a day of abstinence from meat. And one of the reasons why we do that, of course, is that not that meat is bad. It's actually very, very good. And uh, I'm planning on having a steak tonight, in fact, not to get you too hungry. But um, we give up something good for something even better. And, of course, um, meat is usually eaten during times of celebration. And I know some people say, well, you can have a pretty decadent, I don't know, salmon filet or a salmon steak as well. So the eating fish thing isn't necessarily a bad deal. That is true. That is true. So, again, it's it's the spirit of the thing very often. Um that we're dealing with here. Um, yeah, I had a lobster dinner, you know, on Friday. Okay, all right. So what we're doing is, of course, is remembering that, that on a particular Friday, on Good Friday, Christ gave up his life for us. He, he sacrificed his flesh for us. And this idea of giving up something for Lent, that, that is optional. That is optional. You don't have to, quote-unquote, give up something for Lent. But it is, it is something that's a tradition, and it's, I think it's a good one. It helps us to kind of mortify ourselves. And, and some people give up, you know, it's the usual suspects. They give up chocolate. They give up uh, coffee uh, for perished thought. I don't know if I could actually do that. But uh, maybe I should just because that would be extremely difficult for me. But uh, you don't want to see me uh, in withdrawal. And it doesn't have to be just a negative thing as well or a mortification. And again, I, we, we're talking about a lot of French words today, Mardi Gras. More the French word more, which means death. It's it's kind of a little death to self. This mortification. So there can be positive mortifications as well. It's not just giving up something. The negative. It can be doing something. So if you don't like to exercise, exercising could be a good mortification for you this Lent, and has the side benefit of making you healthier as well. Um, if you don't like to do housework, that could be a mortification for you, and it helps the family. The, the the possibilities are really endless here. So as St. Josemaria Escriva I like to say, choose mortifications that don't mortify other people, that don't make their life harder. Try to do some mortifications that, that make life easier for everybody around you. So there's fasting, there's abstinence, there's the custom of giving up something. And uh, here's a... Um, there's an, there an off-air caller that didn't want to call in. If you want to call in with a question, 888 9149, an off-air caller, a little bit too shy to come on the line, wanted to know, uh, with tomorrow being a day of fasting, what can I do if my wife and I are older, she's diabetic, but we still want to participate in the fast? Okay, so again, I'm not sure how old you are exactly, but remember, it's the ages of 18 and 59. Now, if you're over the age of 59, you're not technically obligated to fast, but you may choose to provided that it's healthy for you to do so, provided it's safe for you to do so. I'm not a doctor. You're going to have to consult with your doctor, especially with the case of diabetes. You've got to make sure that you're getting your your medication that you need, insulin, and managing blood sugars and all that sort of stuff. So that's that's kind of beyond my expertise. I don't want to give you medical advice. But there may be situations like that where, where you're on medication. You do have to eat or something like that. Uh, mothers who are nursing children are exempt. Pregnant women are exempt, that sort of thing. Active military members who are serving on duty are exempt. There, there are some exemptions that, that, uh, that are there for uh, the fasting obligation. But this is under normal circumstances, all things, of course, being equal. So we also want to do a couple other things, too, other than fast. That's 
prayer. We want to focus more on prayer and also almsgiving. So, intriguingly, fasting kind of helps us do those two other things as well. Because when we are experiencing this hunger in the belly, it should hopefully inspire in us a hunger for God. And a really great example of this from Scripture is the prodigal son. Because remember, he's living this life of debauchery. He's spent his inheritance. He's wasted it on harlots and wine, women, and song, essentially. Uh, Not good. Very sinful behavior. And and he is longing for his father's house. Eventually, he comes to his senses. What am I doing? He's hired himself out. He's longing to eat not just the pigs, but the foods, the food that the pigs are eating, the, the slop that they're feeding the pigs on this farm where he's working. And of course, he can't do that. It's totally not kosher. But he's like, well, at my father's house, there's food to spare. What is going? What have, what have I been? He comes to his senses and he goes back home. So really, fasting spiritually should. The physical fast should spiritually cause us to long for the home of our Father. Not just coming to heaven, of course, in the end, but but the church that, where, where we can find him, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. Wow, that's the meal that truly satisfies body and soul. And so when we fast, that, that facilitates um, prayer, hopefully, wanting to seek the Father. Also, also, almsgiving, because we want to... We want to add this. Now, fasting, here's how it can help almsgiving. Let's say, I don't know, during Lent, you you talk about it with your doctor, you're healthy enough to do something. I'm going to skip out on lunch, you know, a couple times a week. I'm not going to buy that enchilada. And I know that Miranda, um, who's uh, working the phones for us right now, 888-914-9149, and her family, they had enchiladas on Fat Tuesday. That sounds pretty delicious. But you might say, I'm going to skip the enchilada. And uh, I'm going to use the money that I would have spent at the enchilada house to, I'm going to offer that to the poor. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to, we had a lot of people during our, our pledge drive last week and we had a record pledge drive. Thank you so much for your generosity uh, when you donated at relevantradio.com and through the app. And if you missed it, somehow our gift from the heart pledge drive, we only do this four times a year and you, and you want to get a tax deductible donation. Of course, you can still go to the website and do that. And, um, we had a lot of people sort of starting their Lent almsgiving early by doing, uh, by giving their gift to Relevant Radio for our pledge drive. And we, we so thank you for that as we seek to bring Christ to the world through the media. And so this obviously should help, help us. It's feeling that little pinch in our bellies uh, should make us more compassionate to those who go hungry all the time. And just, just think about what, what life is truly all about. As Jesus says, it's more than food. It's more than clothes. It's, it's about God. And so there's so many things in this world that, and we see this all the time, that when, you, when people have their fill of everything, whether it's culinary delights, whether it's money, whether it is fame, power, glory, it never satisfies, satisfies anyone because we are made for so much more. As St. Augustine put it, probably the most famous line outside of the Bible, our hearts are restless until they rest in you, until they rest in God. So these are some of the purposes of Lent, and I love this season of Lent. It's a great, great season for us. I love the rhythms of life during the liturgical year, and there's just so much that we can do. And so I wonder what you guys are thinking about giving up for Lent. You can call in, 888 9149 if you're thinking about doing some sort of a penance whether it be a positive mortification like we talked about or a negative one and what about the whole valentine's day angle of course 
tomorrow is Valentine's Day. It's also Ash Wednesday. And I think there's, there's ways that we can reconcile these two, of course. Love for our beloved, for God, the lover of our souls. And just like any marriage, any, any love relationship needs work. It needs attention. You can't just let it go fallow. Um, the relationship's going to deteriorate and, and suffer, suffer, suffer greatly. We, we have to do the same thing with our relationship with God. It's a great chance to try to get our prayer life back on track, to be a little bit more intentional. So what, what are you guys doing? What are you, what are you lovers doing are, for Valentine's Day? Are you going to sort of combine that with Ash Wednesday in a creative way? I'd love to hear about that. Maybe you're having your quote-unquote Valentine's Day today on Mardi Gras instead, 888-914-9149. I know a lot of people for sure are going to maybe try to give up or dial back their social media usage, their smartphone usage a little bit. I read a really interesting piece, and this is actually a very scary piece um, about what this stuff actually does to your brain. And it was, and we, we hear these, read these articles all the time that smartphone use, too much of it is bad for you in so many different ways. There's so much addiction that happens with these things that leads to antisocial behavior. I, I know a guy that, he literally is like, is even if he's in a public place, even if he's in a family gathering, he he never stops looking at his phone. Like he, he just his eye, he will never look at you when he's talking. He's got his eyes on his phone, just sending off this message that you know you're not important, that I'm bored, and I'd rather be doing this. Not a good look. But there, there's actually a really serious angle to this for our brain health that maybe you're not quite aware of. We all we all have heard of gray matter, right, in our brains. This guy's got a lot of gray matter. Um, maybe kale doesn't have quite as much, but but there's also something else. And I, I didn't really know about this. It's called white matter, white matter in your brain. So that this could literally save years off your life. There, there's a um, a fitness guru on uh, on Twitter on X now, as it's known. His name is Dan Go, Dan Go, and his his handle is at Fit Founder. And uh, just a few days ago, he he actually wrote a little thread. Of, of tweets, of posts on X about, you know, what smartphone usage does to your brain. It can actually save you 10 years of your life if you pay attention to this. So we all know that the average person spends about five hours a day, which seems it's a lot. When you, but there's a way to check. Just go to the screen time. If you're on an iPhone, uh, if you go into your settings, check out screen time. And you can actually, it'll tell you how much time you're spending on your smartphone, how many hours, minutes you're spending on each individual app. The average person spends about five hours a day on their phone. So think about this, as Dan Goh puts it. He says, if they did this from the ages of 20 to 80 years old, and these days people are getting their first smartphone long before the age of 20. If they did this from the age of 20 until they were 80, they would spend a total of over 10 years, a whole decade of their life on a screen. They're a great invention, these phones, but they are more toxic than you think. And that's not even the worst part. Chronic smartphone use has been proven to change your brain chemistry. So it, it, it affects the production of something called GABA, GABA. These are disturbances uh, that can really sort of be a, a harbinger of, a, of addiction. It triggers dopamine, and we all know this. We get this sort of dopamine hit. This is the feel-good kind of natural chemical in our bodies. We get a dopamine hit. We get a short-term boost when we open up our phone or we tap an app. It's so colorful. And here, actually, uh, Daniel Wheatley, who listens to the program, he, he actually messaged a, a whole bunch of us on Twitter, myself and some other relevant radio hosts, 
uh, saying, hey, here's what I'm doing during Lent. I'm actually going to grayscale on my phone. And you can do this in the settings, certainly on an iPhone, probably on an Android as well. You can go to grayscale where it just it takes the color off of your display. And that's part of why you look at it so often. So it can be a little um, something to make you use it a little bit less. But we all know that we get this little dopamine hit. It uh, gives us a little short-term boost, but then there's this big letdown at the end. And then you want another hit. It's it's a little bit like a drug addiction. You just want more and more, and you need more to satisfy that craving. So let, let me just talk about the gray matter situation because, again, we've all heard about uh, gray matter and um, Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> I never watched that show, but some of you are probably addicted to that show. You should give it up for Lent. But uh, gray matter in our brains, that, that's what's responsible for controlling our movement, our memory, and our emotions. So it's really important to regulate that. Well, there was a study that came out, uh, and this is actually a, a well-detailed, well-documented study, and Dan Go links to the study in, in his little thread here, that this study scanned somebody's brain who was addicted to, to their phone. And what they found was that, th- this is scary, they found that not only was there a lower volume of gray matter in the brain, which again has to do with your movement, your memory, your emotions, but their brain also looked exactly the same as the brain of a heavy drug user. The same physical shape, the same physical size of that of a drug user. In other words, their gray matter was shrinking like you would not believe. But, but what about this whole idea of white matter in your brain? I had not heard about this. This was a new one on me. You're listening to the K.O. Clark Show on Relevant Radio, 888 So the white matter in your brain can be compromised as well. So what this does is it helps the body process information, and it's correlated with your intelligence. So I'm pretty sure most of us are not looking for a way to become dumber. You know, um, Phone addiction has been shown to create what they call spotty white matter in your brain. So that essentially translates into loss of communication within your brain. The synapses aren't firing. This is pretty scary stuff. And by the way, here's another important note. And maybe this is where putting your phone on grayscale, you know, getting rid of that color palette, that can help you a little bit. Because it's not, it's not actually the phone itself that you get addicted to. It's the apps. It's the apps. Now, the only app that you're allowed to be addicted to here is the relevant radio app, of course. But other than that, it's not. it's bad. Okay, so... What, what the apps do, of course, they're designed this way. They're designed to capture your attention. And it, and it sort of alters your brain chemistry a little bit. And it, it's no, and this is also true with social media. It, this is a fact, by the way. The founders of social media sites like Facebook and other sites, they actually went to Vegas. Now, just like the Super Bowl was in Vegas, had that sort of Vegas theme. Lots of lights, lots of flashing lights. And, and, this is another story for another day, but I used to work in a casino. You can ask me about this another time. So I know, I know about the psychology of this. I, I know how this stuff works. They went to Vegas, and they, they actually consulted with the gaming industry in Vegas. How can they make this more addictive? How can we make our apps more addictive to people? That's where the, the whole idea of the infinite scroll comes in. When you're on your screen, when you're in an app, and you're just scrolling, 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 scrolling through posts, it's like pulling a slot machine. You know, and it comes up, you know, the numbers and, and symbols come up, and you're just kind of hoping for something good to show up and hit the jackpot. But usually you don't. You just waste a lot of time. So the addiction actually does not come from the phone. It comes from the apps. And so, and this is a striking image that, that, that Dan Go uses. He says, think of the phone as the gun, 
but it's the app that pulls the trigger. Oof, wow, that's uh, that's quite a line right there. And of course, phones can also, if you're addicted to your phone, if you're addicted to your phone, you can experience more anxiety, depression, obviously car accidents, people not paying attention, eye strain, neck and back pain. I, I heard even there, there's some studies that have been done on teenagers and young adults who have kind of grown up in the smartphone generation over the past, you know, 10, 10, 12 years, that the bones in their neck are different. And they're, they're sort of almost growing a new bone in their, in their neck, in their spine area, because they're, 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 they're doing the smartphone prayer all the time. They're bowing their head. They're looking at their phone. They're not looking up. Their posture is terrible. It, it can really affect your, your neck, your back, disturb your sleep. People talk about blue light before you go to bed. Not a good thing. Problems with your relationships. Yeah, you know, there's that meme of the, the couple that's like in bed, but they're, they're backs to each, or each other and they're looking at their phones. Yeah, you can see how these things can happen. Destroy your mental health, your physical health. Um, how do you know if you're addicted? Okay, so you, you say, okay, you got me, Kale. Okay, I believe it. People are addicted. This is a problem. Well, how do you know if you are addicted? Well, are you craving it? Are you always reaching? Just some questions you can ask yourself. Are you always reaching for the phone when you're bored? Do you find that you're giving your phone more attention than you give your children or your loved ones? Are you using it during dangerous situations when you're driving? Are you texting and driving? So if that, if any of you have answered yes, if you've got your hand up in the air now, here's how you break it. Number one, you got to be aware. Get real. Look at your screen time. Uh, in your settings and figure out exactly how much time you're spending every day. Stop rationalizing it. Um, it it's all, a little bit like Alcoholics Anonymous. You have to admit that you have a problem in the first place. You have to say, hi, I'm John. I'm an alcoholic. I, you know, I'm a smartphone addict. Number two, you have to remove the triggers. And this can be making your phone grayscale. This can be getting rid of ma- uh, apps on your phone, social media apps, things that keep you coming back. Maybe just have them on your on your computer instead, and just look at the web version of these uh, of these apps, whether it's X or whether it's Facebook or something like that, and only do this at certain times. Just keeping essential apps that you need on your phone to get through your day. Uh, make your phone ugly through grayscale. Change your environment. This is an important one. If you're doing work, if you're if you're trying to do some deep work, put your phone in a different room. Maybe before you go to sleep. Put, put it like on another table, put it on a dresser across the room. And that way, when your alarm goes off in the morning, if you use a smartphone as your alarm, you got to actually get out of bed to turn it off anyways. Last chance of uh, hitting the snooze button. The best way to reduce phone time is to remove the phone from your environment for a little while. Turn off the notifications. Turn off the, the go silent, go, in, go into silent mode. Because when you hear that ding, when you get a text message, it's, it's a little bit like a Pavlovian response, the Pavlov's dog's response. You hear the bell, you want to check it, you start salivating, you want to grab your phone. So you, you, there's also ways to set up notifications so you only get notifications from certain people. For example, your boss. You know, I have the Father Rocky notification if he calls me, right? Um, don't want to miss that call. A call from your wife. A call from somebody important in your life so that you, you, you're you not reaching for it every single time you hear the noise. But if you do hear that noise, you know it's something important. Um, Keep them out of the bedroom. Keep them away from the dinner table. No phone zones in your home. Um, and this is this is you might find this funny, but here I'll just I'll close with this because um, he, he Dan Go says um, there's only two places that I would bring my phone: uh, the bathroom and the dinner table, and that that's where he would bring bring his phone the most. You know, you're 
kind of sitting there, you're scrolling, um, and, and then the dinner table. And that, that of course, is very antisocial and, and not conducive. So he said, I replace that by putting books in his bathroom. He's got sort of a little library in his bathroom to read. And, and then the dinner table is a no-phone zone. Um, oh, and he also said this. He said, if I ever brought my phone to the table, he said, I, I made a deal with my wife that I had to donate $100 to Justin Trudeau as punishment. He said, trust me, this works. Uh, so he didn't do that. Um, so you have to sort of replace the bad habits with good habits. That, that's a good example of that. So what, what, what are you going to do with the time that you would normally spend on your phone? Go for a walk. Walk the dog, do a little bit more reading, and and you're going to get a lot more out of that anyways, and you won't you won't regret doing that. Working, pray more, go go to Eucharistic adoration. So, keep track of it. What you track, what you measure, those are things that you can actually improve. If you're really, really, if you're an Excel kind of guy, make a spreadsheet and figure out how much time you're spending every day. We're never going to be able to eliminate smartphones and technology from our lives. I don't think that's realistic, but we can manage it in a more healthy way. And I think that this is what maybe a lot of you guys are going to be focusing on during Lent. Uh, it's probably a good, a good positive and negative mortification that you can use. So yeah, it'll help you, I think to, to, to live a better life. So check it out. Think about it. We'll put a link to that uh, thread in the show notes as well. And we will be right back on the Kale Clark show, triple eight, nine, one, four, nine, one, four, nine. Be right back. Helping you keep your mind off traffic and on the more important things in life. It's Kale Clark on Relevant Radio. Welcome back to the program, 888-914-9149. I want to talk about something. I, I wanted to talk about this yesterday, but I, I got kind of got waylaid. We had so much on the go yesterday, I, I wasn't able to get to it, ran out of time. But yesterday, February the 12th, marked the birthday of Abraham Lincoln, President Abraham Lincoln, my favorite American president of all time, personal hero of mine, love Lincoln. Of course, Relevant Radio is home base. Its worldwide headquarters are in Lincolnshire, Illinois. So uh, there you have it. Um, 215 years ago, he was born uh, yesterday, February the 12th, 1809. And the uh, famed Lincoln scholar, uh, Dr. Heather Cox Richardson, uh, has written some books uh, expert on this time period, expert on Lincoln. Uh, she also writes a newsletter uh, called Letters from an American. Um, don't agree with her about it, about everything that she buys into, but I do I do agree with her take on Lincoln for sure. And and she wrote this in her newsletter yesterday. She said that on February the 12th, 1809, Nancy Hanks Lincoln gave birth to her second child, a son, Abraham. And of course, he grew up to be the nation's 16th president, and he was president from March 1861 until he was assassinated in April 1865, a little over a month into his second term. By the way, side, interesting sidebar. I'll get to this if I have time. I hope I have time for this because you ever heard the phrase, your name is mud or you know, his name is mud? It has something to do with Abraham Lincoln. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what that is. It was an interesting factoid that I learned um, if we have time. So hopefully we can get to that. But we know, of course, that Lincoln was assassinated at the Ford Theater just a little over a month into his second term as president. Obviously, uh, led the country through the Civil War, preserved the concept of, of democracy. And, and democracy has never really, we haven't even fully realized the concept of democracy, what the Founding Fathers had had envisioned. And I think it was 
really divine what they envisioned. Um, but he saw this. Lincoln saw democracy as the last best hope of Earth, as he put it, to prove that people could actually govern themselves. The famous Gettysburg Address in November of 1863, he said, four score and seven years ago, you probably all learned that in school, our fathers brought forth on this continent, a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, end of quote. As Richardson pointed out, though, it's interesting that he dated the founding of the nation four score and seven years ago from the Declaration of Independence rather than the Constitution, the date of the Constitution. That's, that's, that was on purpose because enslavers preferred the Constitution because in the Constitution it talked about protection of property. And enslaved people were considered, of course, property. So in the Declaration of Independence, the founders of of the United States wrote that they held, of course, certain, quote, truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. End of quote. But of course, uh, enslavers in America in Lincoln's time had begun to argue that the founders actually got this wrong. They, they, they were saying that their system of enslavement was the right one because they, they were amassing fortunes which, which had never been seen before uh, on the backs of enslavement. And they, they sort of viewed most men as being inferior They must be led by their betters, quote-unquote, for their own good. Uh, James Henry Hammond, uh, who was a South Carolina senator and enslaver, he said, quote, I repudiate as ridiculously absurd that much-lauded but nowhere-accredited dogma of Mr. Jefferson that all men are born equal, end of quote. But in 1858, uh, Abraham Lincoln, when he was then a candidate for the Senate, he, he noted that these kind of arguments were the same arguments, he said, quote, that kings have made for enslaving people in all ages of the world. Turn in whatever way you will, whether it come from the mouth of a king, an excuse for enslaving the people of his country, or from the mouth of men of one race as a reason for enslaving the men of another race. It is all the same old serpent, end of quote. Obviously implying it comes from the devil. And as Richardson puts it, either people were equal or they were not. I mean, that's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. And Lincoln saw that very, very clearly. And Lincoln said this, I should like to know if taking this old Declaration of Independence, which declares that all men are equal upon principle, and then making exceptions to it, well, where will it stop? Where will it stop? And, and it's interesting that, that one book that influenced uh, Abraham Lincoln greatly was uh, a book called Captain Riley's Narrative. It was very popular in the Midwest in the 1830s. And it was all about uh, a shipwreck uh, of, of, a, of an American brig, an American ship called Commerce. And it was wrecked on the western coast of Africa. And the men uh, on, on this ship that had you know, kind of wrecked were enslaved by, and this is part of the title of the book, enslaved by wandering Arabs on the great African desert or Zahara. So essentially it was about white men enslaved in Africa. And so Lincoln said this, and he, and he wrote this out according to Richardson on a fragment of paper in the 1850s. He sort of 
gamed out his reasoning here. He said, quote, if A can prove, however conclusively, that he may of right enslave B, why may not B snatch the same argument and prove equally that he may enslave A? You say A is white and B is black. It is color then. The lighter having the right to enslave the darker? Take care. By this rule, you are to be slave to the first man you meet with a fairer skin than your own. You do not mean color exactly? You mean whites are intellectually superiors, superiors of the blacks and therefore have the right to enslave them? Take care again, because by this rule, you are to be slave to the first man you meet with an intellect superior to your own. But say you, it is a question of interest. And if you can make it your interest, you have the right to enslave another. Very well. And if he can make it his interest, he has the right to enslave you. End of quote. So Lincoln saw, according to Richardson, she says, he saw that if we gave up the principle of equality before the law, we've given up the whole game. You've admitted the principle that people are unequal and that some people are better than others. And once you've done that, once you've replaced the principle of equality with the idea that humans are unequal, you've granted approval to the idea of rulers and ruled. And at that point, all any of us can do is hope that no one in power decides that we belong in one of the lesser groups. So this, this is the genius of, of Abraham Lincoln, what he saw so clearly that uh, what was at stake, that freedom itself, democracy was at stake. And, and as he said, that the government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from the earth. Everything was at stake during the Civil War. And, and what he did uh, was so epic. And that's why I think he's the greatest president of all time, the GOAT, Abraham Lincoln. So it was his birthday yesterday. Honest Abe. And uh, honestly, it's been a great hour with you on the Cable Clark Show. So glad that you joined me for it. If you missed any of it, please check the podcast at relevantradio.com, the Relevant Radio app. If you are giving up smartphone apps for Lent, make sure that you don't give up Relevant Radio. Of course, that's a little tongue in cheek, but we're so glad that you uh, have decided to do that. If you want to email the program, the address is kale, C A L E, at relevantradio.com. Follow me on the X app at Kale Clark. And we'll be back for the next episode tomorrow. Jim Shaper produced Miranda Sinisteros took your phone calls. Take it away, Michaela. Thank you for listening to my daddy.